last time we were together last week, uh, we were in the midst of uh, looking at Gideon and uh, the miracles of the uh, of the fleece. And um, I kind of went down a rabbit trail talking about miracles in particular and in, in, in general, um, talking about the the use of miracles and uh, how the Scripture uses them. And we're going to pick up on that same theme of miracles and then um, see how it applies to Gideon and his situation. Um, So if you want to turn in your Bibles to um, Judges chapter 7, we're we're going to start there, but we're going to refresh your memory first on what I said last week about miracles. So some of this may sound familiar because I'm rehashing and restating some things to uh, refresh your memory. And then we'll move on and eventually end up at uh, Judges chapter 7. Uh, The importance of uh, miracles in Scripture is that they demonstrate that God is the eternal and active God. And that the universe is not self-creating, The universe is not self-sustaining. It is not based on some impersonal process. Miracles then, as I said last week, refutes the religion of Baalism. And in fact, it refutes other false religions as well that declare the world operates through an impersonal process. Uh, Today's Baalism that we call secular humanism would say that uh, there would be no progress or even any change at all if there was not something called chance. And we touched on that last week. Uh, These people would say impersonal process plus impersonal chance equals the reality of the world today. For instance... There is something uh, out there in uh, this modern Baalist philosophy. They reject the God of Scripture and his sovereign creative powers, and they declare that creation of the universe was the result of millions and millions and millions of years plus chance. Now let me give you an example of what I'm referring to. Without any evidence, a lot of modern scientists are using this Baalistic philosophy of process, and they are declaring that there are millions and millions and millions of universes that exist at the same time, the same place as ours. And that by chance, we happen to be living in a universe that brought life about through non-living material. So they would say, when you have all of these millions of universes, the chances are that one of them would allow this to happen. And we happen to be living on that one. Therefore, there's no such thing as miracles, because they allow for this uh, millions of universes to exist. Uh, It's a modern scientific idea called string theory. 
But God's miracles also answer this same uh, problem of, of modern Baalism. Miracles do not happen randomly, but they happen with a purpose. Miracles do not happen just as at random. They are caused by people or a person. And to put it another way, the timing of the miracle refutes Baalistic philosophy of chance, while the action of the miracle refutes the Baalistic philosophy of process. So you can't have a process uh, with miracles. And miracles have happened, therefore the process is uh, declared null and void. Because the Christian God is a person, the miracle is a personal thing. And thus it has a purpose. And it also has a timing that no philosophy of chance or process can account for. This is seen especially in the God of the Bible as he predicts in advance what his miracles will be. And there's no way a philosophy of chance can have predictions. Since you, how can you predict something that is going to be a chance event? So, getting back to Gideon, the first test that Gideon uh, desired to have done it had to do with the, the fleece and the dew. Gideon realized that perhaps this was simply uh, occurred because the fleece was very absorbent and absorbed all the moisture around it. So he felt that perhaps because of that possibility, a second more clearly miraculous test was necessary that the fleece stay dry and the ground around it becomes wet. And God also granted his request for this miracle. Thus the meaning of the story of Gideon and the fleece is this. Baal is not God. And God is not limited as is Baal. God is sovereign over Baal. And note that God did not rebuke Gideon for asking for a sign, but graciously gave him the signs that he needed to strengthen his weak faith. And that was one of the purposes here for the, the miracles. God was attempting to mature Gideon's faith. Now this does not mean that God will answer every request for a miraculous sign. Jonathan? There are two reasons why we should not look for signs the way Gideon requested them. First of all, miraculous signs were given to help the faith of the people before the Bible was completed. 
this was evident with Christ and his miracles. He was <clears throat> using the miracles to show the people that he was the Son of God and that those uh, miracles would strengthen their faith in him. But now that the Bible is complete and that the Spirit has been poured out in its fullness, our faith should be able to stand squarely in the Word of God and God's Word alone without any miracles. Second, miracles are given, as in this case, to help the faith of the very weak. I've read reports where missionaries have gone into places where the gospel has not been presented. And so we hear from these missionaries sometimes of miracles that are taking place. And again, it was the use of these things that God is, is increasing the faith of the weak and to justify or show the power of the Word of God. But these same miracles are not often seen in places where the gospel has begun to take hold in the society. This is the way God acts. And we must understand it and we must conform uh, to him. God does not want people depending on miracles. But he wants them to depend on his word. And so God acts to bring his people up in a, on a way of maturing their faith so that they will not always be looking for miracles. So we've been speaking of sign miracles. At the same time, we tend to place too little confidence in the eternal, active, loving, fatherly God that we worship. Our modern philosophy of process makes us hesitant about asking matters of our daily life uh, in prayer with God. We tend to look at what's going on in our life and just we look at it as a process. We get up in the morning, we go to work, we do this. And, and we don't often go to God and ask for help through the day to achieve the daily process. It is just as easy for God to keep my car running as, if, as for him to allow it to quit. When we see that God is active in everything, our dependence on him should greatly increase. While we should not look for miracles in the sense of signs, because the Bible is our sign, it's the way that it has been given to us to live, we should be looking, however, all the time to the eternal act of God to bring our daily needs to pass. We need to look at him for everything that we have and, and go to him in prayer with those regards. There's much that we should be asking for, except that our Baalistic philosophy of process causes us to think that 
there's no uh, use asking for it. We should be more diligent in taking everything to God in prayer. As I alluded to a few minutes ago, there are things in our lives that we have gotten used to. And do we simply think, well, that's just the way things are. But in reality, however, these things we have gotten used to are the way God is doing things. And God can do things differently if he wants to. Baalism is uh, rampant in America today. Uh, we see it in the classroom. We see it in the sciences. And it's basically attempting to manipulate people by manipulating processes. Government becomes the false god of Baal because government manipulates the process. For example, <coughs> We have poor in our society, so government manipulates the process. We have a war on poverty, if you remember back from the Johnson administration. Trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars have been spent to eliminate poverty, but they tried to change the process. But today, the number of people that are on, below the poverty line is not a whole lot different than it was during the Johnson administration. So today we come up with a new way to change the process. So now we're espousing the idea of universal um, uh, income, universal basic income. Everybody gets, man, woman, and child gets whatever, $1,200 a month. We're trying to manipulate the process. Uh, there's a lot of people in our culture today that feel that they're victims. And th they blame the process. The process is structural racism. So if we tear down the process and start over again, then we can eliminate victimhood and, and racism. So this idea of manipulating people by manipulating the process is found both sides of the political spectrum. On the right, the conservative side, <clears throat> we are told that all cultures and civilizations go through a process. This is just one of many models. And normally, they'll say the culture starts with bondage, moving to faith and courage, and all the way around till we're back in bondage again. <clears throat> And they say every civilization goes through this. Every culture goes through this. It's the process. God doesn't work by processes. And God can change things if he wants to. On the left, we're told that there's dialectical materialism. This is the Marxist philosophy, that everything can be boiled down to economic issues. If you start off in slavery, then yet that uh, creates some social issues that need to be resolved. You have a master and you have a slave, and the production is not very efficient. So you redefine the process and you make it into feudalism. Now the, 
there's no slaves, but the serfs are tied to the land. And whenever the land changes hands, the people go with them. Again, we have a social conflicts that arise between the landowners and, and the people working the land. So we go to capitalism. And capitalism creates another problem with the proletariat and, and uh, the bourgeoisie. And so we tear it all apart, and we have communism, which solves all the problems. So we see it on both sides here, this process thing that's going on. So we as Christians must keep reminding ourselves that God is a person. Our relationship with him is personal. And he is personal, personally interested in every atom of the universe that he's created. And he governs all things by his personal actions. And we can ask for anything that we need in our daily life. And he will answer. It doesn't go through a process. When God performs these miracles exactly according to what he had been agreed upon beforehand, then Gideon knows that God will deliver Israel. Gideon knows that God is able to do a miraculous event through him, Gideon delivering Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon knows that God is willing to do it because God has foretold it. So the, <clears throat> any thoughts or comments on miracles? Yeah? Good point. Well, thank you. Any other thoughts or comments on miracles? Exactly. So God um, has to instill it in the person's heart, you know. Yeah. Right.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's where we start to see man-made institutions becoming God. And like you said, it's a form of Baalism. It's affecting, trying to affect the process and manipulate people by that way. Yeah. Yeah. so often just try to get through life on our own, you know, and we don't pray, and, and we don't pray for one for another, and and I thought uh, Rachel had a good point yesterday at the picnic. She says, you know, we've had a lot of people come through this building as parts of our churches in the past, some members and some just visiting, and we never really know what's happened to them, and that maybe we ought to pray for some of these people even if we have no contact with them today, that, that uh, God would deal with them and, and protect them and hold them. You know? I think that's a, a pretty good idea. Yeah. I mentioned it last week. Yeah. yeah. And it's a good book dealing with this whole topic. Okay, we find ourselves now in uh, chapter 7 of, of Judges. <clears throat> Jonathan? As we discussed uh, in an earlier lesson, holy wars uh, must be fought by faith alone. And to make this clear, God commanded Gideon to give his army some curious tests. And I know this is nothing new to you guys. You've read this uh, whole story before, but uh, uh, I think it's a good time to refresh our memories as to the working of God and uh, that God would receive the glory for this and not man. Seven, uh, Chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harod. At the camp of Midian was on the north side of him by the hill of Mora in the valley. So if you look up here on the map, you see the red circle up there, and you see the valley of Jezreel, and below the red circle you see the well or the spring of Harod. So they come out of Ophrah and over to the well or the spring and uh, God is dealing with them there and the Lord said to Gideon the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands lest Israel glorify itself against me saying my own hand has delivered me now therefore come and proclaim in the hearing of the people saying Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount uh, Gilead. 
So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for, for you there. Therefore it shall be that he who, whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with 300 men who lapped and all gave the Midianites into the, your, your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his place. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their temp- trumpets in their hands. And he sent all the other men of Israel, and each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. As we saw last week, Gideon here is called Jerubbabel, which means Baal fighter. It's his nickname. And he's going to go to war against Baal. And he can do that now because of the confidence that God has given to him uh, through his experiences the night before. So they arose early with the sun. The rising of the sun is a picture in judges of the strength of God's righteous people. Uh, There was a phrase in the song that we sang this morning about uh, rising up as the sun. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, commands that when the army is summoned, those who are fearful should be sent home. And so the Lord reminds Gideon to implement this now. Uh, Holy wars are fought by men of faith and who have confidence in the Lord. And moreover, the Lord is showing Israel that ultimately he alone is going to be their deliverer. They have no active part in this victory except to mop up the uh, residue after the first battle is won. 22,000 men departed, and thus the place was called the spring or the well of Herod, which means fearful trembling. In the second test, it was those who were single-minded who were chosen. Lapping as a dog laps is explained in verse 6 as taking water into the palm and bringing it up to your mouth like this. And you're not kneeling down according to the scripture here. All the time you've got one hand either on a spear or ready to grab a sword while you're drinking. And you're looking around as you're drinking. 
And that's the type of man that uh, God wanted uh, to uh, be called into the service of Gideon. So they were scooping the water up in their hand like a dog scoops the water up with its tongue. So these men were, were very conscious conscious of the holy war that they were uh, involved with. They did not kneel down to drink. And again, they remained standing, so they were alert and ready to grab their weapon at a moment's notice. So God's wars can only be fought by men such as these, who have a purpose, a, a focused a mind, um, and a stout heart uh, of faith in God. So Gideon's band numbered 300. The enemy was 135,000. This is a ratio of about 450 to 1 in favor of the enemy. Not good odds, humanly speaking. But God's plan, as revealed in verse 18 and following, required that each of the 300 men to have his own torch, his own trumpet, and a jar so that these had to be collected from the provisions of the larger base camp and the rest of the men returned to their tents. Now, the, it wasn't that they got off scot-free. These men that returned to their tents will be called in later as they pursue the army uh, back into the land of Midian. So they will be called into service. But for the initial battle, for the initial victory, there will be 300 men. Verse 9. Now the same night it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise and go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Pura, your servant, down to the camp. And you will hear that they, what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Pura, his servant, down to the outpost of the army that was in the, was in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came... Behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I dreamt a dream. And behold, a loaf of barley bread was tumbling into the camp of Midian. And it came to the tent, struck it so that it fell flat, and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. And his friend answered and said, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. And the first part of verse 15, And it came about when Midian heard the account of the dream and its interpretation that he bowed and he worshipped. 
John 6.44 tells us that if God left us to ourselves, we would never turn to him. Yet for some divine reason, God loves his people. Despite our sins, despite our rebellion, he originated the plan to bring them back to himself. Not only the people uh, in Israel, but okay, uh, even us Christians. He has a plan to keep drawing us back to himself. And keep in mind, it was God who sent the prophet to call Israel's attention to their sins. It was God who led, uh, took the lead in calling Gideon to be the savior of the people. It was God who took the initiative in attacking Baal. It was God who sent the Spirit to clothe Gideon. It was God who created Gideon's band of 300 guerrillas. And now it is God who comes to Gideon to encourage him before the battle. This is the expression of the love of the one true living God dealing with his young, immature child. How often have we been in the same place as Gideon? All the things that God has done for us, drawing us back to him. God suggests to Gideon that he go into the Midianite camp and take another man along for moral support to see how God has prepared the way for their victory. And verse 12 gives an extraordinary image to impress on our minds. When you think about that, as many camels as the sands on the seashore, you know, as many troops as a locust devouring a field. On the surface, we assume this vast army of trained warriors knows no fear. It is Gideon who must be afraid. The barley loaf was the bread of the poor in Israel. As a result of seven years of invasion, the Midianites and the Amalekites have taken all the wheat. And the only thing left for Israel to eat was barley. Israel was, was poor. They were on the verge of starvation. So the loaf of barley bread then clearly symbolizes Israel. Okay, they've gone down to see what they're talking about in the camp. <clears throat> it is a, um, a round loaf which rolls aggressively into the camp of Midian. And this symbolizes the fact that Israel will launch the attack. Now, I don't know if you caught it in, while we were reading, but it says here the tent, uh, talking about the tent, symbolizing the Midianite army. The fact that it was the tent rather than a tent uh, probably speaks to the fact that this would be the commander's tent that was destroyed, the headquarters of the army. This tent was struck by the barley loaf, turned upside down completely. 
So it's hard to imagine a tent being turned upside down if you've ever gone camping and, you know, can you, it's one way to build the, put the tent correctly, it's another way to imagine it upside down. But uh, in a dream, anything can happen. At least in my dreams, anything can happen, I'll tell you that. This is clearly meaning that the fortunes of the Midianites will be re reversed, uh, they'll be inverted, um, the tent lies flat, it's abandoned. Uh, the interpretation of the dream, however, is what uh, was most amazing to me. Uh, instantly, the friend of, uh, of the dreamer jumps to the conclusion that the dream refers to Gideon. Now, who would have thought that these Midianites had even heard of Gideon? Even more, they obviously were terrified of Gideon. How could this have come about? It could only have come about through God's involvement and God's plan. Here we see the other flip side of God's gracious initiative to Israel and Gideon. Here we see God's angry advance against his enemies. On the one side, love and compassion to Israel and, and uh, Gideon. Here the same God is, is uh, bringing judgment upon his enemies. As he acts to instill panic into the hearts of these soldiers. Gideon and Israel are being uh, delivered from fear, relieved from fear, having confidence in God, while Midian is being delivered unto fear. God's using the same thing two different ways. You might say that two sides of the same coin. The army of Midian has heard reports about Gideon, a mysterious man who had suddenly arisen out of nowhere and who had organized an army practically overnight. They respond to this news with an irrational horror. After all, humanly speaking, uh, they have no real cause for alarm. No matter who this Gideon is, he could not possibly defeat uh, 135,000 uh, veterans Warriors, God, however, is at work. So what an encouragement this is to Gideon. The enemy knows his name, the name of God's anointed Messiah, and they are terrified of it. They know God is with Gideon and against them. And Gideon bows in worship with this revelation brought to his attention. And so should we, as we are, behold the great God that we worship, the great God of wonder that is active in our lives. Back to verse 15, part B. He returned to the camp in Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into our hands. And he delivered the 300 men into, the 300, into three heads, or three companies. And he put trumpets and empty uh, pitchers into their hands of all the men, with torches inside the pitcher. And he said to them, Look at me, 
and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, it shall come about that just as I do, you shall do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets and all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon realized <coughs> that the um, prediction made that the Lord had given, the preparation that the um, Lord had g- given them uh, to take the enemies of Israel's um, was going to be decisive. Uh, he gave them the instructions to divide up the 300 men into three companies. And three, uh, these three heads of uh, his Israel will crush the heads of the enemy, symbolic of Genesis 3.15. Now notice, I don't think Gideon included his name in the battle cry as a means of vainglory. Uh, he used that as a military strategy because he knew that the uh, the enemy were af- was afraid of him. And by crying out that name, again, the fear would rise up within them. In verse 19, so Gideon and the hundreds of men, hundred men who were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. When they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets, smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. And when the three heads or companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hand for blowing and cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And each stood in their place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. And then they blew 300 trumpets. The Lord set the sword of one against another throughout the whole army. The army fled as far as Bethshirat, uh, towards Zerah, as far as the edge of uh, Abel Menorah, by uh, Tabatha. The st- <coughs> students of military history have studied this battle and written about it even today. And it's uh, based all on what we call psychological warfare or psychological operations. And a man by the name of uh, Paul M. Leinberger uh, analyzed this. He writes about psychological warfare. He's a Christian and he would uh, instruct the army personnel in in this uh, type of warfare. And this is what he, uh, his analysis, this isn't mine, but this is how he described it. It was the early part of the night, the beginning of the middle watch. He says, we sleep more soundly during the first part of the night than during the early hours of the morning. The Midianite army, when it awoke, would be highly disoriented. The watch had just been posted. These men coming from the lights of the camp out into the darkness, their eyes would not fully be adjusted to the dark environment around them. They would not have been able to tell anything about the situation except to see 300 torches and hear 300 trumpets. 
which had to mean that there must be at least 300 companies just beyond the perimeter. The men returning from the first watch were moving about the camp trying to find their tents. As men awoke from their deep sleep, hearing the shouting and the trumpets, they knew that there was an attack coming. These sleepy men looking out about saw armed men moving about in their camp, going into the different tents. They did not realize that they were their own comrades returning from the watch. Thus they attacked each other. The trumpets and the noise and the fire would stampede the camels, causing havoc and killing the men. And the name of Gideon would strike fear into the hearts of those who heard it. Now keep in mind we cannot give credit, humanly speaking, for the victory of this operation. What we read here is the same thing that Israel saw at the Red Sea. Stand fast, behold the deliverance of the Lord, which will accomplish, will accomplish for you today. Exodus 14:13. It was the Lord who gave this plan to Gideon, and it was the Lord who made it work. Any thoughts or comments as we close? Brother Dale, would you close us in prayer, please?